let's take our Bible tonight and let's make our way to the book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 2. We're actually going to finish out this chapter and, and uh, look at these two sections uh, together. Last week we looked at verse 1 down through verse number 11, and that was the vanity of pleasure. Uh, but tonight we're going to look at the vanity of wisdom and work. Uh, probably could have said wisdom and wealth, they both go hand in hand, but uh, these other aspects, these other areas, if you would, that Solomon brings our attention to and what he has wrestled with in his own life and uh, life under the sun in general. And so let's read our text and then we'll dig into it just a little bit. Verse number 12 of Ecclesiastes 2, Solomon writes, So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly, for what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten, how the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after the wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all that for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to the despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart for, with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or, ha or who can have enjoyment? For the one to the one who pleases him, God has given him wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and striving after the wind. A lot to take in here within this passage, but I think we can glean some things from it. As we consider just overall Solomon's search, he's searching and looking, experiencing what, what is it that will give life meaning and significance and uh, ultimate, ultimate satisfaction is essentially what he's doing. When you look at one way and one way doesn't work, what do you do? You go looking for another way. Or maybe if you're looking, trying to use one tool and it doesn't work, you, and it doesn't, if it doesn't work, you go to another tool, right? It's a common practice of many things in life that we seek to do. How many of us have ever lost something and been on the search for it and you looked in one place you thought it was and wasn't there, so you go searching around and then you ultimately come back, well, I'm going to check this same spot I've already looked at again. 
A few weeks ago when our family was in town, we went to the mall for a little bit as my sister was getting her wedding ring cleaned, and so me and my brother-in-law, we sat in one of those massage chairs, you know, that are in the middle of the malls, and uh, how, many of us, how many of us have ever paid for one of them things? Well, I did, right? My back was hurting. I thought, well, maybe this will help. So I sit there, and I take my wallet out and uh, pay for it, but I didn't want to sit on my wallet, so I set it underneath my lap there, but I forgot it was there. So the massage gets done, and then, um, and then it's time to go, and I get up and walk off and just leave, and my wallet just sitting there in the open in the, in the, in the mall uh, chair. So uh, I don't realize I've lost my wallet until we get to the movie theater, that we're going to see a movie, get to the concession stand to pay. And then you have that uh-oh moment, where's my wallet, right? And so I'm looking all around, checking every pocket. Bethany, did, it, did you put it in your purse? Go retrace my steps, go to the car, look through the car. And then I realize I left it in that chair at the mall. And so I'm frantic trying to get over there and get over there, run into the chair and go to the chair where I know I left it. And guess what? It wasn't there. And I thought, man, this is the end. (laughs) Uh, Somebody has walked off and taken it. It had cash and cards in it. I went to the uh, security desk and thankfully somebody had uh, taken it up there. Pretty sure they took a little cash out of it beforehand, but they were a, a good citizen for taking it up there, right? And uh, as I considered that event, I looked everywhere for something very important and couldn't find it, even in the place I thought that it was, which was that chair. And this is similar to kind of what Solomon's doing in this opening text. We recall how he set himself on a search for this significance, this ultimate meaning, this fulfillment of life under the sun. And in the previous passage, he was looking at pleasure and experience with that, right? But before that, what did he consider before he came to pleasure? He considered wisdom, didn't he, at the end of chapter 1. And what was his conclusion with that? Much wisdom is vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. He had applied his heart to that already, but now we come, it's like he's coming back, I'm going to look here one more time, but he gives us some different angles in regards to wisdom. And so uh, I want us to consider some things through this text that uh, might help us glean some more of what Solomon's searching for and and how he uh, concludes what he concludes. Notice with me in our notes tonight, number one, Solomon's wisdom left him empty. Just like the pleasure last week, right? Solomon's wisdom leaves him empty. In other words, wisdom and living wisely does not bring about the full satisfaction he's actually looking for. And you'll see why here in just a moment. You look at verse 12. When pleasure didn't turn out, he says, I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. I repeat that because he already said that in chapter 1, but now he's here again. But I want you to see that these are two categories. Wisdom is its own category, and madness and folly are its own category. What does Solomon mean by this wisdom? We recall chapter 1. He said, I applied my heart to seek and search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. Verse 17, he says, I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but striving after the wind. So Solomon knows what it is to possess wisdom. He knows what it is to live and practice wisdom. And here in our text, he's looking at that again with some additional insight. But I think it's important for us to note that when Solomon's talking about wisdom here, he's not referring to divine wisdom that enables one to see spiritual truth clearly. But rather, he is referencing basic human wisdom of living wisely in this world. He's not speaking of deep spiritual understanding that is from above, but rather of human thinking at its best. 
And so when a person lives wisely in this sense, who does not know true wisdom from God, they still can live in a way in which common sense would render us to live wisely, right? Uh, For example, Benjamin Franklin said, He that lies down with dogs rises up with fleas. It doesn't take spiritual insight to understand that, does it? I mean, that's just basic human wisdom, human sense, all right? Now, the opposite of that is what? Madness and folly. What is madness and folly? It is living in a way that is foolish. Foolish or stupid or brutal, as, as uh, uh, brutish as Scripture sometimes describes. It's to live foolishly. It is to live without common sense, without understanding. So a foolish person doesn't think through their decision, and as a result of not thinking through their decision and going about their decision, they reap often some damaging results in their life. For example, I think a good example of this is the prodigal son in Luke 15. You remember he begged or he demanded his inheritance. His father gave it to him, and what did he do with it? The Bible tells us, Luke 15, that not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had, took a journey into a far country, and there he did what? He squandered his property with reckless living. That's characteristic of living foolishly, not thinking through what you're doing. You're just going to do it without any regard for what you're actually doing, and you reap the results. And so Solomon here, understand, he's contrasting living a life in human wisdom with human wisdom, which he had a lot of, with a life of human foolishness. And a lot of that is what the book of Proverbs does. Now I want you to understand that ultimately applying wisdom in its chiefest form is through spiritual understanding. Uh, Don't get me wrong there. I'm just trying to tell you what he's contrasting here. True wisdom is from above. True wisdom is found in the fear of the Lord. But there is a human form of wisdom in which men in this world who are unregenerate, they may live in a wise manner by earthly means, by earthly terms, and have a very successful and prosperous life, contrasted to the fool who gives no care for anything and does not live their life wisely. So verse 12, notice what he says here. What can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. What's he saying by that? Well, since Solomon, the king, right? He's the king in Israel. Since Solomon, the king, he's been the wisest and the wealthiest king and has yet to find fulfillment in any of these things that he's tried. Who else is going to be able to do more than what he has already done? They're just going to end up doing the same thing if they are blessed with wisdom like him, which none were, or wealth like him, and none were. And they're going to come to the same conclusion. And with this in mind, seeking out wisdom, seeking out living by wisdom versus living in foolishness again, in verse 13, he tells us something. He does give us something significant. And I meant to say this in our opening point here, that wisdom is better than folly. I'm going to point that out. Living wisely is better than living foolishly. That's just fundamental for us. In verse 13, he tells us there's a difference between the two ways we live. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. So, is it better to live a life in a wise manner instead of a foolish manner? Of course it is. Of course it is. 
The call of mankind, call to mankind from Scripture is to gain wisdom and live wisely. Wisdom cries out in Proverbs 8, 5, O simple ones, learn prudence. O fools, learn sense. And that's what mankind needs, right? He needs wisdom. He needs sense. I mean, you look around us and you see how mankind lives. They don't live in a lot of sense, do they? All you got to do is look at Congress and you see how much lacking sense there is, right? I mean, that's just how it is. They need wisdom. They need sense. And that comes from uh, God, right? But even basic earthly wisdom, common sense is lacking in so many ways. We need spiritual wisdom, firstly, to know God, which is most important. But we also need the plain wisdom of life in order to live a life that is opposed to foolish living. Now, wisdom is better than foolishness in the same way that light is better than darkness. Just like it says in verse 14, the uh, the wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Now, when you cannot see clearly, you really can't walk rightly, can you? Now, I know the layout of my house pretty well. I can navigate to whatever room I need to get to, even in the dark. Probably all of us could do that, right? If all the lights were off, you can kind of feel your way. you got an idea of where you're going. But what I cannot navigate is the toy that's left on the floor that I stumble over or the laundry basket in the hallway. Now, when the lights are on, I can see that thing. But when the lights are off, you get hurt. You stumble. You hurt yourself. So in that way, light is a lot better than darkness. And so Solomon here, he's using that as a contrast in a very practical, down-to-earth sense. He's not talking about the saved versus the lost, but the wise versus the foolish in a very earthly sense. Now, in the New Testament, we see light and sight. They are metaphors for salvation. But in Ecclesiastes, he's not using them in that same sense. Light and sight are metaphors for living wisely with sense. So living with wisdom has great value over living foolishly. Many people in this world live with earthly wisdom and they benefit from great earthly comforts and enjoyments from that wisdom. All right? People who know how to invest and are well with finances. You don't have to be a regenerate person to be good at finances. You don't have to be a regenerate person to know a lot about health. You can be wise in these areas of life and still be successful. And on the opposite spectrum of that, you can be extremely foolish and disregard any kind of sense that there is. Scripture manifests this in many ways. Proverbs 10.1 is just one example. Proverbs of Solomon, a wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. You can be one or the other. That's just the reality of it. So we should seek to live wisely because wisdom is better than folly, Paul says. But here's what he points out also, Paul, Solomon. Solomon says that. Don't quote me if I'm wrong. Wisdom, letter B, is ultimately unfulfilling. Wisdom is ultimately unfulfilling. You may live a very wise life, but that does not give your life full purpose and satisfaction that we actually look for. See, living wisely, even in this earthly sense that Solomon's talking about, is not going to give us the permanent satisfaction we need. If a person has enough wisdom to keep themselves from danger, to increase their wealth, to sustain their health, and so forth, is that really what's going to make their life complete? The answer is no. 
Solomon next says in verse 14, and here's why. There's a great equalizer to both the wise and the fool. Notice verse 14, he says, And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them, the wise and the foolish. Now, the reality is, is that both the wise and the foolish in this world, they both experience all kinds of hardship and suffering and trial and trouble. All right? That's, it doesn't matter how wise a person may be, they can't escape the reality of the sin-cursed world. Jesus said in the context of loving our enemies, but Matthew 5.45 gives us this point, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. But notice this last sentence. He makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Many of the same people in both groups, wise and foolish, they experience rain and sunshine. Both sides, both groups. Wise people and foolish people get sick, lose loved ones, go through pain. But the main event here that Solomon's talking about, the main event about is not, is not all these variety of things we may experience, but one thing that both the wise and the foolish experience. And what is that one thing that they experience, church? Death. The wise experience death. The fool experiences death. And there's not one group of people that will ever escape that. There's no one who escapes death. It is ordained that man will die because of this sin-cursed world. Sin in us. Hebrews, the Hebrew author says it this way in Hebrews 9.27, just as it is appointed to man once to die, and after this comes judgment. It's appointed for us to die. And guess what? Death is no respecter of persons. Death has no respect for who a person is in their life. It comes for all of mankind, regardless of how wisely they lived or how foolishly they lived. And so since both the wise and the fool are going to die, is it really worth it to live wisely instead of foolishly? That's Solomon's question here. Look at verse 15. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me. Solomon's the one who's wise in this picture. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. What is the use of our earthly wisdom and how we live if in the end we're no different from the fool and the great? Whatever advantage we gain from living wisely is only a temporary advantage. And so therefore, living wisely, the conclusion of this, living wisely is not the ultimate means of fulfillment in life because both the wise and the fool die. They can't escape death. You see, death puts everyone on an even playing field in the big picture of things. One commentator said, as a cure for the ultimate problem of life, wisdom is useless. Both the wise man and the fool succumb to death. And I think I've pointed this out, how many of the wise in our world, the scientific experts and biologists and whatever have you, they're constantly looking at a way to overturn this one thing, death. Death. Constantly looking for ways to either enhance the human body so that it lives longer, which maybe that will happen, but doesn't mean... Death is going to be erased, right? They may improve longer life, but that doesn't mean death is gone. You're still going to die. Some have thought they're going to download their consciousness into a computer. 
sci-fi world, right? The reality is death comes for all of us. And this is why Solomon says at the conclusion of this, he says this also is vanity. Vanity. This also is vanity. Striving after the wind. So Solomon's inner turmoil increases as he considers the further reality of life and death. Now look at verse 16. He says, For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance. See that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. Now what does mankind want to do beyond just, beyond just trying to escape death? If they can't escape death, what else do they want? They want to be remembered. They want a legacy, right? We naturally want our very small and and temporary existence of life to have impacted this world in some way so that our life will be remembered. Why do we have our tombstones made of granite instead of cardboard? Why is our name engraved in that tombstone instead of just written on there like with a sharpie or a pen or something? It's meant to last, right? We and our families would like ourselves to be remembered so that at least by the graveside we see this is, this is where so-and-so was buried, right? How long their life was. Born this date, died this date, and maybe a little slogan about their life. Etched into the tombstone. But what happens as time goes on and all who knew you eventually are gone? Within a generation or two, all who knew you existed no longer exist. And so, therefore, your existence has faded into the history. Faded into history. How well remembered are you really? Even the tombstones eventually fade and become hard to read. At the last church I pastored, there was a cemetery right across the road. And sometimes I would just walk over there, get some fresh air, read what's on these tombstones. Now, the ones up to the front. They're fairly new. You can see and read what they are, but you get all the way to the back. There are some that are barely above the ground, and you can hardly read what's even on them. Make out their name. Name out their birthday, even their death day. They go back to the 1800s. It all fades. Even those people who we would deem greatly significant and are written in the history books, they fade into history, don't they? There's only 46 men who have ever been President of the United States in the history of our country. How many of those 46 men can you name? Most important men in the world, right? Through history, in terms of nation in our recent history, how many of them could you name? Now, I'm sure I had to learn them in school at some point, but they're all but forgotten now, right? Takes a lot to remember. Even if you know some of them, how do, how do you, can you remember something significant they did? Very few. Very few. Maybe just a few stick out to us as the big ones, right? George Washington, Abe Lincoln, Ronald Reagan, some of these, some of these big-name guys. Richard Nixon, sure. <laughs> throw, throw whatever one out to you. I didn't even remember that one. But time eventually grasps hold of our memory, and it fades into the distance the past and thus Solomon says this how the wise dies just like the fool the wise dies just like the fool isn't that so so true now with that in mind Solomon says in verse 17 now this is this is might be kind of shocking 
Solomon's conclusion and what he's feeling, he says, so I hated life. I hated life. Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity in a striving after the wind. Now, I kind of had to read that twice. Did Solomon really just say that? I hated life? How could he say such a thing? We've heard others with great cries of suffering in their life, right? Like Job. Job 3.3, he says, Let the day perish on which I was born in the night that said, A man is conceived. Let that day perish. But you know, understand, Job had just experienced a traumatic event. He's just buried ten children and lost everything. And he's in great physical pain with the boils on his skin, and his wife is against him. He's basically all by himself, he feels like. But Solomon is not in the midst of some traumatic trial. He's the wisest and wealthiest man, king in all of Israel. And yet he says, I hated life. Why does he say that? Because of what he's seeing in regards to life under the sun. Remember, this is a perspective of life in the sin-cursed world without God. He hated it because of the futility of pursuing wisdom. It doesn't change anything. The certainty of death. You can't escape it. The disappointment of being soon forgotten when you want to be remembered. This is a depressing view of life. And it is the view that is limited to a sin-cursed world. Voltaire wrote this to his friend. He said, I hate life, and yet I'm afraid to die. Nobody wants to die, but at the same time, they don't, have true, they don't, they don't know this true satisfaction and fulfillment of life and what it's actually about. What is their purpose in this world? You see, both the believer and the unbeliever can be greatly discouraged by life itself if only this earthly life is in their focus. And this, Christian, is why it is so imperative for us not to get caught up in this present world, that we don't look at this world as our satisfaction and fulfillment. We're to look beyond this world to the person who actually does give satisfaction and meaning to life. And who is that person, church? It's Jesus Christ. Christ Jesus our Lord. What did Jesus say about himself regarding this? Let's look at one passage, John 4. Brother Russell brought a great message Saturday from John 4 on worship. And included in this narrative, let's, let's look briefly at verse 13 through 14 for a moment. We know Jesus is here at the Jacob's well where he meets this woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. Went there on purpose, by the way. Verse 13 and 14, Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Isn't that true? You get a drink of water, you're thirsty again. You eat a meal, you're hungry again. That's the way of everything in life when it comes to pleasure, wisdom, wealth, riches, everything. You get it, and then you want more. You get it, and then you want more. You're never truly satisfied. But here's what Jesus says in verse 14. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And we know Christ, he ain't talking about physical water, is he? He's talking about spiritual water. Meaning the satisfaction that he himself gives to a person. Because he is God. He is the Lord, the Savior, the King. He is the only one who completes us. 
He said also in regards to eating, John 6, verse 35, he talked, told this crowd about the bread of life and <laughs> that comes down from heaven, and they say, Sir, evermore give us this bread, right? We want this bread, so we'll never hunger again. Who wouldn't want that, right? But he says to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thaw thirst. They're thinking physical. Jesus is speaking spiritual. And he's saying, I'm the bread of life that came from heaven to give eternal life to those who believe on me. See, regardless of whether a person lives wisely or foolishly in this world, Jesus is the only way a person can truly find fulfillment and satisfaction in life. And so that's why Solomon has the reaction that he has, because he's viewing life as in, if, it, if we just live wisely, is that enough? The answer is, no, it's not enough. Solomon's wisdom left him empty in the end if it's left without God. Notice with me number two, not only do we see Solomon's wisdom left him empty, Solomon's profit left him empty, the profit from his work and labor, his wealth, all his toil. And he points out some things that are important for us in here, in this passage, and really will tie into the whole theme of the book in one sense. But I want you to see, firstly, that the increase of our labor is temporary. It's always temporary. Everything we gain in this world is temporary. And so he continues, upon this thought, since, since all was vanity with wisdom, living wisely, which is interconnected to working, because wisdom and how you work goes hand in hand, right? Verse 18, he says, I hated my toil. So I hated my toil in which I toil under the sun. His perception of living wisely only to die applies now to living laboriously only to die also. Now why is this such a big deal to Solomon? Why does he hate his toil and what he gains from it? It's not because he's lazy or hates to work. In fact, as we've looked at his life, he was quite the worker, wasn't he? He was always working, building buildings, gardens, and and vineyards, and all sorts of things. He hates the fact that his own mortality, of his own mortality, and how that affects his view of labor and profit. How does his mortality affect his profit? He says this, seeing I must leave it to the man who will come after me. I'm really saying everything he's gaining is just going to be left for somebody else. He's not going to take it with him. He knows and recognizes that all that he has, all he's worked for, will be left behind for someone else. And this is his concern about whom it's left for. Verse 19, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. I've worked all this years and all this, all this wealth I've, I've accumulated by his wisdom. He's going to die and leave it behind. And what kind of person is that going to be left behind to? How are they going to treat it? How will they value it? Will it even matter? That, that's a genuine thing to, concern, to consider for him. Now, many of the things that you may have worked hard for and valued may not be valued the same way by your children and your grandchildren. I've been through some things where someone's died and things have been passed on. I say, hey, you want this? Or, hey, you want that? And I look at it like, not really. I don't be interested in that. You might have greatly valued books, being an avid reader and knowing their importance. This would be me, right? You've seen my library in the office. I love books. 
But your children might not have the same passion. They may not treat them with the same care you did, and that could, this could apply to anything you could think of. Now, I hope my children are readers because they're going to get a lot of books when I die. I've still got a lot of years left to keep buying them. They say there's two good hobbies. There are two good yeah, hobbies, I guess. Reading books and then buying more books than you can read, right? That's the life of a preacher. We leave behind all that we gain. Psalm 39, 6, Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. Does not know who will gather. I mean, you may have a will written out and uh, something that, that designates it to someone, but you don't know in the end how they're, what they're actually going to do with it in the end, right? On another note, you may have acquired great wealth and have great inheritance to leave behind, but those to whom it's supposed to go to might be foolish in how they live their lives with it. This was true of Solomon's work and labor. Solomon built great buildings, gardens, a temple, vineyards, had a great fortune, and yet his son Rehoboam was such a fool that he lost most of his father's kingdom in 1 Kings. This is what his genuine consideration was, and it happened. That's part of his turmoil. He says in verse 19 of his prophet left behind to another, Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. How will the owner of all that you leave behind handle it? That's his concern. Now considering all of this, you come to verse 20 and Solomon says this, So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. So he's looking at all that he's acquired and how what's going to happen with it when he dies and he just he's just in despair considering all of this. Considering all of this. He's torn up inside. He knows how hard he worked and has worked and that all he's acquired will be left behind. And this is the principle for all of us in our earthly life. What we gain in this world does not go with us. Never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul. It ain't going to happen. You know why? You don't even take the clothes you're wearing at your funeral with you. They stay buried in the ground. You take nothing with you. They stay in the grave. We leave everything behind. This is Solomon's sad reality and ours too. All that we work hard for and acquire to build is left behind. And what happens to it? It's just gone along with you. I think of my own dad in this sense. Who, you know, he worked for Coca-Cola for 25 years. You know, that was his career. And then I think it was in 2008 he lost his job because of all kinds of economy stuff and they were cutting back. But that led him to starting an auto repair shop. He worked tirelessly to get that business up and running because when you start a business, it takes a lot of work, doesn't it? A lot of hours, a lot of headache, a lot of uh, manual labor. He worked hard to keep it running during uh, the, the, the time it was gone, only to die right there on the job in the very place that he had worked hard to build. And what happened to that business once he's gone? Well, it continued just for a little while, but then eventually dissolved. As I was reading this text, it came so much more real to me, seeing that with someone in my own life. Dad built up a business, worked hard to get it going, dies, business fades off, nothing's there anymore. But that's the reality for all of human life. 
all of us, all that we work hard for, all that we build, it fades away just as we will. There are many in this world who think if they're a workaholic, they're somehow going to give meaning and fulfillment to their life. But it doesn't. It doesn't. Now, that doesn't mean you don't work hard. But if you're looking at your work for your fulfillment, you're going to be sorely disappointed. With that, Solomon continues his reasoning for his despair. Look at verse 21. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. In other words, someone may work hard their whole life only to never enjoy it and leave it for somebody else to enjoy. And Solomon says this also is vanity and great evil. The psalmist put it this way, Psalm 49.10 says, He sees that even the wise die. The fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Now Solomon concludes his thought here in verse 22 through verse 23 by saying, What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? What's he really have from all of this? And he says, For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest, this also is vanity. This points us really to two aspects of work. It involves physical work and mental work. Both play a role. Both aspects are part of the life of labor. We work physically and mentally in whatever vocation we've been called to, and we often do it strenuously and through a lot of stress, don't we? Some work long, hard hours in factories, warehouses, construction, on the farm. Some work sitting at a desk, operating on a computer, or driving a vehicle, whatever you could think of. Regardless of what kind of work and toil a person is given to, this work and toil will not give ultimate fulfillment to life. Daryl Sparks, a friend of mine in Indiana, pastor up there, said this in his commentary, making a living is not the same as making a life. If you make work your life, you will be left empty. Now, this doesn't mean, don't misunderstand me, this doesn't mean that we shouldn't work hard. This doesn't mean that we shouldn't love what we do as a job or do what we love as a career. I hope we do. It simply means that the work and our profit from that work is not the ultimate source of fulfillment in this world, in this life under the sun, because all that we do and acquire will be left behind to someone else. And so thus Solomon's conclusion of this is vanity. But notice with me letter B, because this really is somewhat of a turning point in this particular text. A little different than what he's been saying. The increase of our labor should be enjoyed. The increase of our labor should be enjoyed. Now, since the labor and increase of our life is ultimately vanity, does that mean there's no proper use for it at all? No. In fact, we come to these last few verses... And Solomon, for the first time in the book, turns really to a positive perspective and application. Verse 24, notice what he says. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. What's that mean? It means we should enjoy the labor we engage in and the fruit of that labor. We're not meant to be miserable in life. We are meant to enjoy Life. We're meant to enjoy life. 
And this really is the direct application to life under the sun that weaves into the whole book. Now, when I say enjoy life, I'm not speaking from a worldly, carnal sense. Live, eat, and for tomorrow we die, right? Live, drink, eat, be married, for tomorrow we die. Like what Paul quotes on the, with, the, with, the, with the worldly people. That's what I'm saying. But the Christian is to enjoy life under the sun in God and what he's given. Notice that he says next in verse 24 through verse 25. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat and have, who can have enjoyment? That right there is the key. Apart from him, who can have this enjoyment? Who can have satisfaction? Who can have fulfillment? Who can have this joy that we want and that we need? You know, prior to this, God is barely mentioned, but now he mentions God three times in three verses. You know why that is? Because God is the central means of truly enjoying life for what it is supposed to be. Everyone around us in this world is trying to find fulfillment in life and this and that and this and that, but they totally have nothing to do with Christ. They're not truly finding enjoyment. They're not going to find it. See, all of our life is to be centered upon God who gave us life, specifically our Lord and Savior, Christ Jesus. We are to enjoy life in Christ. You know, Solomon mentions eating and drinking as an enjoyment. You remember what Paul wrote in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 10, 31? He said, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to what? To the glory of God. I mean, you just think about it. Isn't it wonderful just to sit down and enjoy a meal? Especially when you're hungry, right? You get your plate ready, you got your drink ready, you sit down and you just get to take in this food that nourishes your body satisfies the physical aspect of your body. Have you ever thought about doing that to the glory of God and considering what an enjoyment it is, just the fact that you get to eat a meal? There's a lot of people in this world that don't get to do that. And yet we're overflowing with meals, right? We have so much that God has given. How wonderful it is just to enjoy a good meal. Take your time to enjoy it. How should we view the meal that we partake in? We should view it and every meal as a gift to be enjoyed from God. James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from Him, even the little things. Beyond our eating and drinking, we find enjoyment in our toil. What can we, can our work actually be enjoyed? Absolutely it can be. I know no matter what your vocation is, you're going to have times where you're stressed and you've got trials and troubles and it gets hard. But ultimately, all that we do is to be done unto who? Unto the Lord. Colossians 3, 23, whatever you do, work half-heartedly as for the Lord and not for men. Make sure you're still awake. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men. You may not even enjoy what you do, but you're still called to do it with all your heart. All of your heart. Whatever it is we do in this world, whether it be a work or a hobby or a leisure, we do it for the glory of God and as unto God. You see, it is the Lord who blesses each of us with whatever 
ability or talent or job it is that we have so that we can glorify him in it, so that we can enjoy life through it, including the getting of wealth. Deuteronomy 8.18, he said to his people, Israel, you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And I don't mean get wealth in the sense of these prosperity preachers, but you work for your income, you work for your life, right? Nothing wrong with that. Save, invest, enjoy that which is the fruit of your labor. God gave you the ability to do that. And so Solomon points out this fact in verse 26. If you read verse 26, he says, For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. I find that interesting. Because God blesses those who know him, those who please him, those are his people, with wisdom joy and knowledge in this world, but to the sinner, they work and labor, and ultimately it's going to be left for the people of God. You know what Jesus said? Who will inherit the earth? Me. Who will inherit the earth? And ultimately, that's what happens in the very end, right? Who is it that inherits the new heaven and the new earth? It's God's people. Ultimately, what matters in our life is that our life in fulfillment and satisfaction is not in our work and wealth or in our living wisely, but it is in Christ. And I want to close with this passage in Timothy because I think this is a great text to conclude with. First Timothy chapter 6, Paul gives Timothy some instruction regarding this subject and really perspective with it. He says in verse 6, But godliness with contentment is great gain. That's something we ought to always remember. For we, we brought nothing into this world We cannot take anything out of this world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. So from that text, Paul says what? Godliness with contentment is of great gain. Be content. Don't make it your life desire to be rich, that that's going to find give you satisfaction. But then you see in verse 17 through 19, the same chapter. He says, as for the rich, in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to what? They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So you see a clear balance there. Godliness with contentment is of great gain, right? And that is true. It is not a sin to have wealth like it was with Solomon. That's not where we set our hope and our trust, is it? Whatever it is that God blesses us with, and however it is that God blesses us with, our enjoyment is in Him, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. And that is the proper perspective we must have. Ultimately, in conclusion, all of this in summary, living wisely is vanity. Living for work and profit is vanity. 
It's empty. If that's all you're living for, it's empty. But doing so with God and for God, then we see purpose. Understanding its proper place in God's purpose for our life. Because He is where our true pleasure and fulfillment is found. So I hope this text has encouraged you. We've gleaned some things from it. It's been an encouragement to me and a good reminder to us as well.